As a vibrant part of campus life, our chapel gathering at Trinity Western creates opportunities for us to hear and be changed by God's story in Jesus through music, teaching, prayer, scripture reading, and storytelling. We're glad you're listening in today. We hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. at Trinity Western, and thank you, James, for inviting me to join you virtually for these two chapel gatherings. I wish I could be with you in person, uh, partly just to meet you and to hear your stories and to see your campus, uh, but then also to be back in your neck of the woods. Uh, Three of the best years of my life I spent going to grad school just down the road from you on the uh, UBC campus. I loved my time in Vancouver, although the Mexican food is not quite as good as it is here in Texas. Uh, These days, I live in Dallas, Texas, where it's hot and it's flat and there's no mountains or beaches, hardly any trees. But aside from all that, it's a great place to live. Uh, Real quick, I'll tell you about my first experience at Vancouver. Um, I rolled in on September 1st and I was just blown away at how beautiful and how green everything was. I was like, why is it so much greener here than anywhere I've ever lived or seen? And then I figured out why, because it never stops raining, ever. Uh, I moved to Vancouver on the 1st of September, and it was beautiful and sunny, and I was like, I am never living in any other place ever again. Well, the next day, it started raining, and it didn't stop until May. Uh, If you know what El Nino is, that was an El Nino year. We had something like 120 straight days of rain that winter. There's actually a condition called seasonal affective disorder, which that first winter in Vancouver just blindsided me. I mean, here I was studying Greek and Hebrew, stuck in a basement library most of the day. They actually had these fluorescent therapy lamps down in the library. They're supposed to be like mood enhancing. Well, that did not work for me. So it ended up being kind of a dark winter for me. I started meeting with a Christian counselor, a therapist, unpacking some of my anxiety and and gloominess. But it wasn't just the rain or being stuck in a library. A few months earlier, my mom passed away. And it turns out there was a lot that I didn't know about her struggles with addiction and depression. And and when she died, I pretty much stuffed it down deep and never really dealt with it, which does wonders for your soul. I was dating a girl that I thought, I was hoping that that we were going to get married, and that winter she broke up with me. So it was pretty much the winter from hell. Now, I don't know exactly what the weather is like in Vancouver right now, but here in Dallas, it's starting to cool off. It'll only be like 95 today. That's 35 Celsius. But around here, people love the fall because that means cooler days and the leaves start to change and the mosquitoes die off and there's football and everybody in Texas loves football. Although right now we're pretty fired up about hockey, go stars. People love the fall, but most people don't really love winter. Just thinking about some of the words we associate with winter, especially those of you from Alberta or Manitoba, uh, words like death, ice, hypothermia, wind chill, death, snow, shoveling snow, shoveling more snow, buying a snowblower, death, salt trucks, black ice, frostbite, gangrene, diminished mental capacity, recreational eating, and death. Most people don't really like winter. 
Uh, that's why folks from California don't usually retire to Calgary. A lot of people would say winter is their least favorite of the four seasons. I mean, think about it. It's the only season that we're so ready to get rid of that we have a quasi-national holiday where a rodent predicts our meteorological future, which I double-checked, and Canada does celebrate Groundhog Day. Right? We don't do that for spring or summer. A guy named Martin Marty uh, wrote a book about his wife's terminal illness, and he talks about a wintry spirituality. It's when the warmth and joy and the comfort that we long to experience in God, where, where it feels like that's been stripped away. And the Bible has some books about winter, uh, books about winter spirituality. In fact, there are more winter psalms, psalms of lament and complaint than any other kind. People just wrestling with God, yelling at God. There's an Old Testament scholar, Ellen Davis, who's written about how in the ancient world, these winter texts are, are quite unique among religions. In no other culture did people pray to their God in language that was so raw and questioning and even angry towards God. Other religions certainly prayed, but only Israel prayed with such unfiltered honesty. And Job is one of those books. It's an amazing story because it cuts so deep to the human condition, and, it's, and I know it's what you've been looking at this fall. So just to recap, the book of Job starts in the land of Uz, which I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but... In the beginning, in the land of Uz, everything is the way we think it should be. This guy named Job is a righteous, upstanding guy, and he's living the good life. In fact, he's so righteous that he, he even offers sacrifice for his kids. Do you notice that? Like, just in case maybe they sinned. And God gives him this wonderful life. And, and here's the key. The amount of blessing Job experiences is directly proportional to the amount of obedience he offers. A perfect direct relationship between blessing and obedience. Now, this was a real important idea in that day. You obey, you get blessed. You mess up, you get cursed. But what happens in us is about to shatter that worldview. Us is a place where very, very bad things happen to a very good man. Us is not just where suffering comes, but it comes without warning, without explanation, and it leaves this wake of chaos and confusion and despair. And the truth is, whether at Trinity Western or at a Presbyterian church in Texas, wherever you are, students and professors and pastors, we may look like we have it all together, but we don't. And every single one of us will spend some time in the land of us. Some of you have. Some of you are there right now. So tragedy strikes Job in every way imaginable, and almost overnight he loses everything that we often look to for happiness, family, relationships, our health, money, success. It's all stripped away. And Job asked the question that all of us ask at some point, why? Why me? Why do good people suffer? Early on as a pastor, I'd try to answer that question. Uh, maybe this is why you're suffering, or maybe this is the reason for that evil. But it's like the older I get, and by the way, I'm not that old, but the longer I've lived, the more, the more suffering I've seen, the more I know that I just don't have an answer that's clever enough to take away the pain. Uh, mostly these days, I just try to sit with people, to be with people, which is exactly what Job's friends do at first. Seven days and seven nights, and, and none of them said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, the irony that struck me so strongly this week as I thought about that was how often in our world we say words because we see suffering. 
I say words because I hope that I can fix you. I say words because to tell you the truth, sometimes I don't want to feel bad. And so, so I want to try to get you to stop feeling bad and then I don't have to feel bad. I say words because I want to help, but I'm not really sure how. And so I just fill the air with empty words because I don't like the silence. And looking back, looking back, I have said some really stupid things in the face of suffering. It's a funny thing, but one of the most often violated commands in Scripture may be the one that, that Paul gave to the Romans when he says, mourn with those who mourn. He doesn't say give advice to those who mourn so they can straighten their lives out. doesn't say find some nuanced theological, eschatological rationale that so the sad people will get over what they're suffering. He doesn't say remind those grieving people that God must think that they're so strong if he's going to give them all that pain. No, just mourn with those who mourn. When my mom died my senior year of college, it was right around finals and graduation, lots going on around campus. But I had this small group of guys, and for four years we met together and almost every week to study the Bible and to pray for each other. And every single one of these guys, the week my mom died, every single one of them with finals coming up, graduation parties, they all flew out from California to Texas to be with me and just grieve with me and sit with me and weep with me at the funeral, and I will never forget that. Before any words, Job's friends were just with him. And this gets to the primary comfort, not, not the only, but the primary comfort God brings from one person to another in winter. It comes not in the form of advice, not in the form of explanation, it comes mostly in your willingness to sit with someone. Well, eventually, Job's friends, they begin to respond to his questions, his railing against the, the injustice of suffering. And, and finally, his friend Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite, he responds. This is Job 4, verse 1. He says, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you, Job, and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. And then these real piercing words, he says to Job, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Okay, that's the wisdom of their day. This really is the wisdom of the Proverbs. The upright will be blessed and the evil will have trouble. And that works wonderfully, perfectly, until it doesn't. Until you see the innocent suffer. Until you see what happens when a disease, a pandemic, makes no distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous and a million people lose their lives. When you see injustices like racism, which right now in my city and in America is just a powder keg moment. We all know that sometimes suffering comes to the innocent. Sometimes evil people with lots of power use that power to crush those on the margins, the voiceless, the defenseless, the poor. And it leaves us wondering, why? When will that ever come to an end? Will God ever make it right? When will it be over? People in winter always ask that question. There's your plot line for Game of Thrones in one sentence. When will winter be over? And some of you, some of you have been in winter for a long time. So 
See, when you're in winter, it feels hopeless. It feels dark. You feel useless. Your suffering feels wasted. But here's the thing. What we know and what Eliphaz and his friends and Job, what they couldn't yet see was that one day God would answer Eliphaz's question. Who being innocent has ever perished? God would answer that question, and he would answer it with the life of his own son. And this is what we cling to in winter, that the God who comes to us in Jesus, he is at work in winter. We may not see it. It may seem underground. Mostly it won't be visible, but everything is not dead. Not really. Things are taking root in winter. Things are being prepared. And when the time is right, there will be new life. But you have to be patient. You have to trust that under the surface, life goes on. We cling to this hope. The psalmist who knew about winter, he put it like this. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So there are two promises we can cling to in winter. The first is the hope that God will someday, he will bring good out of your winter. This is part of what the Bible talks about when it says God redeems even suffering. God will will redeem suffering. It's the hope that God will bring good things out of your winter. It's a strange thing, but over and over again in life, when people look back over their lives, they find that the times of greatest growth were often winter times. They find it was in the seasons of winter that life got real clear, or in seasons of winter that compassion grew. Or in seasons of winter, they learned patience. Or in seasons of winter, their faith got real deep. I know that's true for me. They find that having gone through winter, they're able to give comfort and encouragement and and, and love to other people who are going through the same kind of winter. Hope that God will bring something good out of your winter. But then second, we cling to the hope in that moment when morning will come. Don't know how long it'll last, A lot of people are asking that question right now. When will morning come? When will the darkness be done? I don't know, but one day it will be over and joy comes in the morning. Something better is coming. Don't let go of that hope. No matter how long or how dark your winter has been, you keep fighting and hoping every day that God gives you on this earth. Winter may be hard. It may be unavoidable. It may be deeply painful, but it is not final because with God, winter is never gets the last word. And we'll pick up with that promise next week. Let me pray. So Jesus, we thank you that even now in this world, even in British Columbia and Texas, God, you are still in the business of resurrecting dead stuff and bringing it back to life. And we pray that you would fill us with this hope that is unwavering, stubborn, resilient, no matter what we face. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope to worship with you at our next broadcast online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with Chapel and Student Ministries by following us on Instagram at TWUChapel and at TWU Student Min. Much love.